podcast series by the National Kidney Foundation. Our goal with this podcast is to take a look at nephrology as a career and why medical students choose it. We're exploring what day-to-day life is like for nephrologists at different points in their careers and highlighting their stories and experiences. I'm Laura Brereton, Director of our Clinical Practice Guideline Development Program, Kidoki. Thanks for joining me. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, a nephrologist and associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Grubbs went to medical school at Duke University, completed internal medicine residency at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California, and nephrology fellowship at UCSF. She describes her true passions as renal palliative care and narrative nonfiction. We talk about these topics, as well as racial disparities in the care of kidney patients and her path to nephrology from primary care. Her book, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers, A Kidney Doctor's Search for the Perfect Match, was published by Harper's Collins in 2017. It's a memoir, a love story, and a gripping description of the experience of dialysis and kidney transplant patients all in one. She also has the enviable Twitter handle, at The Nephrologist. Hello, Vanessa. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. So you describe yourself as a country girl from Spring Lake, North Carolina, and the first physician in your family. So you didn't grow up thinking you would apply to medical school. Can you tell us how you made your way into medicine? Sure. So I did not think of um, becoming a doctor until I was a junior in high school. And uh, but I always liked math and science, so I knew I wanted to go into something health-related. It just hadn't occurred to me that um, being a doctor was something within my reach because I, I never saw any doctors who looked like me. And so um, I, I remember I wrote about this in the book as well, but when my oldest brother uh, came home, he was uh, in the Army and 16 years my senior, he came home and uh, asked me what I planned to do after high school. And I said, I wanted to be a medical technologist. I, I wasn't exactly sure what that was, but you know, it sounded cool to me and it was different than anybody else at my, you know, rural high school planned to do. And he said, well, you should go all the way and, and be a doctor because you can. And it was just that little bit of encouragement that put the seed in my head. Like, oh, really? Okay, I'll be a doctor. So from that moment forward, that was the path I had chosen. Wow. Did any of your other siblings follow that same path in the end? Oh, um, I'm the youngest. And they call me a um, accident. Uh, <laughs> but I say I'm a surprise <laughs> because they are uh, much older than I am. They Their ages range from eight, nine years to 16 years my senior. Um, so as the first one, um, they had all gone into different things. But I did, my oldest sister actually did later in life, um, decide to go back to school and became a registered nurse. So that's, I think that's pretty cool to do that in, in your 50s. That is pretty cool. I really enjoyed this section of your book describing your experience as a medical student and perceiving that all the specialties had a personality. So you thought mm-hmm. you'd go into OBGYN, but then you discovered on your rotation that the OBGYN seemed angry and sleep deprived. So what was your experience with nephrology? 
You know, I, I actually did not have an experience with nephrology as a medical student. And I think that's a real problem in terms of recruitment to nephrology because um, uh, it wasn't something I had to do. And the reputation uh, was that nephrology was hard and really demanding. And my attitude was, well, if I don't have to do it, then you know I'm not going to do it. And I hadn't met anyone that uh, made me interested in the field. So I, I think that's uh, something that we should definitely, as a field, try to work on to give uh, students exposure so that we can do a better job of getting people excited early on about nephrology and uh, uh, nephrology as a career. Mm, yeah, I've heard that before from other people, too, that they, if they don't have that early exposure, it's not likely that they'll go into it in the end. Yeah, I mean, people tend to make up their minds. You, you either have to differentiate yourself as a medicine person or a surgical person in medical school. And, and then usually by the intern year of residency, people have decided what they're going to do. And a lot of it, I think, is driven by who they meet. And, uh, you know, kind of an admiration um, for the person as well as just getting excited about the, the content area. So, I mean, I was I'm very unusual and that was not my story at all. But um, I think that is the case for the vast majority of folks. Right. So when was your first exposure to nephrology? Was it during internal medicine residency? Yes, I was a, I did my primary care residency at Highland Hospital, which is the public hospital in uh, Alameda County, California. And they did not at the time and, and still don't actually have a nephrology fellowship. And so everything is kind of left to the residents. And they contracted with a uh, private practice group to basically provide the attending uh, uh, supervision. So it, I can't say it was a pleasant experience at all. It was very scary to be a resident and not really know what you're doing and have to deal with some pretty um, you know, serious things. In the book, I wrote about a patient who drank antifreeze. And you know, that's a very much a life and death situation. Um, but also because the most, many of the attendings, I won't say all of them, there were some that were interested in, uh, teaching us, but many of them were just, I mean, it felt like we were just a means to a paycheck and they were in and out of there and not really trying to engage us in teaching. And, and then the last part was most of what we saw were people in trouble with their, dialysis access, like their fistula or their graphic clotted or the catheter had an infection, or they, they were people who had basically had such horrible behavior at, at outpatient dialysis units that um, no dialysis units want to, wanted to take them anymore. So we did a lot of like social work kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, activities, which wasn't you know, very fun or you know, wasn't a learning opportunity really for us at all. It was like scut work. Yeah, that, no, that doesn't sound like it. So you, um, you do write that your lectures during nephrology fellowship were then given by super smart faculty who were less than super at captivating me with dry PowerPoint presentations. 
But one lecture did stand out when an instructor showed a magnified glomerulus, which you called a thing of beauty with coils like hundreds of interlaced fingers, which is uh, the title of your book. So how do you present kidney anatomy and disease to learners today? Truth, I try not to because uh, uh, is of course, it's really complicated. That was a struggle for me to write about it in the book in a way that a person just walking down the street would know what I was talking about and really not bored to tears by it. Of course, if they're medical people, you, you talk on a very different level and people are you know, familiar with all the anatomy type of language. I can't say that um, uh, I do anything nearly as vivid as um, I wrote about in the book. You know, we had an, an episode earlier on this podcast where we spoke with someone, a, um, a medical student who created something called Project Nephron. And reading your book reminded me of this because what she did was made a poster, a giant picture of the glomerulus and copied this for everyone in her class. And, and then I think she presented on this at ASN one year. So I think there's something there about really showing people what's going on inside that maybe they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And it really kind of sparks some uh, understanding and excitement. One thing I did want to talk about also is, so you mentioned that you worked first as a, a primary care physician before your nephrology fellowship. How has that or has that affected how you interact with primary care physicians today as a nephrologist? Well, I would say on the one hand, it makes me feel kind of like an oddball because I think primary care doctors and nephrologists approach things very differently. And I feel like I'm, a, I'm still a primary care doctor on the inside. So I'm, I'm really thinking about lots of uh, kind of big picture things, and maybe it's just my personality, but I, I feel like a lot of my um, uh, colleagues, they get really excited about things on the microscopic level, like, you know, with the physiology. And um, so I, I can't say that I, I get as excited as they do by those things. So, um, but I think that's a, it's a good thing to have um, people who think differently and feel so that everybody is not just um, speaking the same thing that others are bringing a different perspective to the room. So that's what I, um, I think my primary care background uh, does for me. And plus, I think it um, gives me a level of sensitivity when I'm working with my primary care colleagues, because, you know, I've been there, I know what that is like and the pressures of it. And um, so I, I think it's definitely an asset. That makes sense. I, I was wondering about that too. So yeah, you have your um, your experience and knowledge of all the social determinants of health. So I, I bet that is helpful. One of the other things you talk about in this book regarding practicing as a nephrologist is just regarding the severity and lifelong nature of, of chronic kidney disease and educating patients on it. And you had this one line that talks about what you do and what nephrologists do is often making people cry for a living. And I'm wondering what you do to find satisfaction despite that and how you can highlight the value of non-curative care, especially to residents and um, fellows training in nephrology. Yeah, it, it does feel pretty sad sometimes. And 
when I have, I run what I call a renal plus clinic um, here at San Francisco General Hospital for patients who have advanced chronic kidney disease. And it is quite a bit of breaking bad news and getting people ready for dialysis, which most want absolutely nothing to do with. But at the same time, I'm trying to entice the residents into nephrology or at least give them a, a positive perception of it. So I think the way I um, try to put it to them is, you know, you can develop these long-term relationships with patients and you're really seeing them through a tough time in their life, potentially uh, end-of-life care. And I think that's a bit of a, a privilege and honor for uh, patients to allow us to be in their lives in that way and trust us in uh, this really um, frightening situation um, to do something that they really have no knowledge of. So I think it is so important, which is why I stress how um, how we need to learn how to do that well, how to help patients with these very serious illness, end of life topics. You are a nephrologist, but you're also a kidney patient. And that's pretty much the focus of your book. You donated your kidney to your boyfriend, who's now your husband. And how has this experience affected your interactions with your own patients, or has it? Yeah, you know, I, I never see my, I don't, you said I'm a kidney patient, but I, I don't see myself that way. I, um, I feel like I'm a very healthy person who could give away a kidney. And now my battle is to stay healthy enough so that I don't become an actual kidney patient with the, you know, approaching kidney failure. Uh, I think in terms of how I use it in my work life is I'm, I'm very open about um, the fact that I've donated. I, I think it helps me build uh, a faster rapport with people, particularly when I, um, I can talk personally about what my, um, my husband has gone through and what he and I together have gone through. And I think me sharing my experience helps uh, a lot of patients be more open to the idea of accepting a kidney from one of their family members or a friend, uh, because most people, their inclination, and my husband was no different, is to uh, not want someone to take that kind of a chance for your life. One, because you know they don't want to see anybody they care about in harm's way. And, and it's just a lot of pressure to, you know, to, you know it's pretty heavy to uh, have something from some a gift like that that you can't ever repay. Um, so I, I share it with them really to say, you know, if somebody wants to donate to you, they really want to do it. And it's, it's, it's a gift and nothing uh, in return is expected. And so I think that helps um, increase people's comfort level a bit. Yeah, that's a unique perspective. Definitely. Another important focus of your book is uh, racial disparities in healthcare. So you cite, for example, how white and black people each make up one third of the transplant waiting list, but whites receive every other donated kidney, while blacks receive every fifth. And you describe how you've seen firsthand how stereotypes and generalizations pose real barriers to Black people getting the care that they need. Um, so for example, when you and your husband went in for his transplant, 
talks, they questioned him, are you sure you can pay for the immunosuppressant drugs? So what are some things you try to do as a physician today to ensure that your patients receive the best care they can as individuals? Well, I really try to do like a pep talk. You know, before people go in for the transplant evaluation, I explain to them what the transplant folks are looking for and uh, really try to make sure that they have their ducks in a row before they go there so they don't make a a bad first impression. One of the things that I've learned is that many of my patients at the public hospital A lot of people are very alone. They don't have a lot of extended family. And those who do um, don't want to be a burden to anyone. So that's that's a recurrent theme is nobody wants to bother anyone or burden anyone. But in order to be listed for transplant, you have to have a uh, well-defined support system, like actually write down names and numbers of your support people. And I've had uh, several patients, uh, they ref- the transplant center refused to put them on the list because of that. And so I've learned to, you know, do this pep talk with patients like, you know, people want to know, people who care about you, they want to know what they can do to help. And it's, it's not like it's, you know, huge things like changing wound dressing and that kind of thing. It's like somebody who's willing to take you to a doctor's appointment. So your book describes the potential harms of race-specific generalizations in medicine. For example, race-adjusted EGFR based on a study group that had higher than general population muscle mass. And you ask, for example, how Black does one have to be for race-specific data to apply? Are you seeing a, a decrease in use of such data, or is it still being taught as useful in medical education? Well, in terms of the GFR, um, race-adjusted specifically, that is ingrained in the system. Like the lab automatically um, reports estimated GFR and then a second one if black. So, um, and I think it's something that's just taken for granted among uh, most clinicians. When I've given talks about it, people are completely unaware that it's really about uh, muscle mass. And they're kind of shocked when they understand where it came from. And it brings up quite a few questions for different patients, particularly, you know, biracial patients. And what really bothers me is the fact that we tend not to question things that resonate with what we already believe. And in a sense, the whole race adjustment thing suggests that of course, Black people are somehow different than everyone else. And I, I particularly have a problem with that, um, the original study, because it only included Blacks and whites. So it's completely dismissing the fact that others exist in the world or that only Black people are different. So every time I come across a training now, I, um, I explain that to them so they have um, an understanding of where that comes from, what it means, and how we actually need to use it clinically. So, um, you know, one person at a time is how I'm trying to change that. But um, I, I, if I had the bandwidth, I'd try to get the labs to s- stop putting the data out that way, you know, just instead of saying lack if high muscle mass, <laughs> for yes. example. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. Yeah, just that, that cultural push to treat everyone as an individual is so important. Um, my last question is, how did you decide that you wanted to write about your experience and what was the reaction of your family and your, your husband when you started thinking about it? Well, I would say the motivation for me was really uh, since I did not plan to go into nephrology and I had a very you know, limited experience with it, I was pretty surprised and not in a good way um, about a lot of the practice patterns in nephrology. And uh, at some point I felt like I had enough to say to write a whole book. And, um, and particularly I'm talking about how we handle uh, dialysis initiation. It's like if kidney failure, then dialysis, regardless of if the person is 85 with severe dementia and is very frail, you know, uh, it just didn't seem like we were making decisions that made sense from uh, like a population or uh, even individual perspective and that a lot of decisions were um, financially incentivized, which I, I felt, I just felt like a lot of things that were happening uh, were wrong and that I wanted to really point things out and educate um, different populations of people so that they could be more aware of what their real options were, what the realities of everything um, are and think about choosing something differently or making a different decision than what our our usual path is. In terms of what my family thought, um, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to write a book. I want to write a book. And most never actually put pen to paper. <laughs> so um, um, my husband is interesting. He tends to be a very private person, like in conversation, people think they're quite close to him, but in reality, they don't really know much about him at all. Uh, he is just a really great listener. He lets them talk about themselves. So I was actually surprised at how open he was in the book because, you know, I, I needed to interview him. I interviewed him for hours to get more details about all the various events in our life together and and uh, his life before me. So, but I think at the same time, he was just excited that I was um, willing to write about the topic. So I think he's proud. Yeah, I, I bet he is. It's such an important, beautiful book. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you for reading it. And I, I again, I really appreciate the inv uh, invitation and opportunity to chat with you. I'm going to add a link to Dr. Grubb's book in the notes for this episode. The National Kidney Foundation wants to hear from our listeners. If you are a nephrologist and would like to come on the podcast to talk about your career, or if you're a medical student or resident considering nephrology, if you have a question about working in the field, please email us at nkfpodcast at kidney.org.